0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, March 27th of 2017, it's episode 107. In this episode, relics and holy items, plus our most rewarding campaigns, a helpful warning to never go full Blackleaf, Grant's plague-ridden life, and more.
1: Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And you might notice that we're missing Grant. Poor Grant is sick again. As it turns out, when you have young children, they tend to be extremely proficient at catching and spreading illnesses. Who knew?
2: And where there are kids, or rather where there are parents, there will be a disease as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, kids tend to bring home only the newest and hippest germs that their parents have not uh, developed antibodies for yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So while Grant contributed extensively to the outline of this episode, he will not be on the mics with us this evening. So, uh, Jenny, you got anything uh, else that you want to talk about before we dive right in? Or should we go straight to our Patreon question? I've had kind of a mundane couple of weeks here.
2: Same here. It's been a lot of Mass Effect Andromeda.
1: Yeah. And not much else. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we really can't talk about it because it's brand new and spoilers. Mm -hmm. So
2: (laughs) That's it. I do like it. I like it a lot. And I do have opinions about the game that once it's less spoilery, I would love to talk about on the mics because... Uh...
1: Yeah, I've I've definitely got some opinions, too. I am also having a largely positive experience with it. Mm-hmm. I have a few minor gripes, but eh, that, that would be better for when we've got some more leeway to actually talk about it. So... Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's take a look at our Patreon questions here. Gotta die here. This is from Jared Rasher. Uh, it says... What is the was the most rewarding campaign you ever ran or played in?
2: That's a big question. Yeah, oh, that
1: is a big question.
2: Most rewarding. Oh boy. I think for me it was the Monster Hearts game that I was in in uh, I think third year university. And uh, it was it was very fun. A lot of really good role play, a lot of drama as Monster Hearts is prone to having orchestrated to have right (laughs) (laughs) and um it was just a a really good fun time like as much as it was all about the drama and stuff we spent like more time laughing in that game than any other game i've ever been a part of it was just so much fun to just hang out with that group of people and make fun of high school as a concept (laughs) together (laughs) (laughs) um yeah. Yeah. Doesn't... Nothing
1: like a little space from that to to make it worthy of being made fun of.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How about you?
1: Oh, I'm having a hard time picking between three different choices. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's making it difficult is that it's all for different reasons. Oh. So, um, the first candidate is I, I've spoken about okay. a uh, Ravenloft game that my friend Kevin ran a few times. Mm -hmm. And that was really rewarding because it really kind of got the group and me in particular to role play a bit more deeply in character than I was used to. Mm. I really felt like I had inhabited my player character in that in a, a major way. And I thought that was really good. We also kind of explored some moral questions and that sort of thing. It was just a really fascinating campaign that way. Yeah. The second one, like I said, for a completely different reason, was uh, the first campaign that I successfully ran. And that was really rewarding because it was kind of um, an affirmation that I actually could GM. Yeah, I-, I ran a whole campaign that started with the player characters at level five, I want to say, and they ended at level 21. They went through this whole big arc, um, uncovered conspiracies, found a lost civilization, saved the world a couple of times over. It was probably a little bit stereotypical in terms of its narrative arc and stuff, but it was mine, and I created (laughs) the whole setting, and it it worked, so that was pretty rewarding. And then I would say the last one that's a major candidate is the Shadowrun campaign that I've done with Grant and his wife and our other friend in the past, Mm -hmm. and that is more for the best gaming group i've ever had and just that we all get along really well we play off of each other really well we kind of covered for each other's weaknesses and bolstered each other's strengths and i just i I got a lot out of that as just an actual gameplay experience obviously but also kind of on a meta level that one was really really satisfying Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm sorry jared i i really can't pick because it's it's so (laughs) it's for such different reasons (laughs) So anyways, uh, thank you, Jared. And uh, if you yourself would like to get a question on our random question table for the beginning of every episode, all you have to do is back us on Patreon at any amount and you will gain access to that. Should we move on with our scripture? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Since you're the newest host, I'll let you take a crack at which one you want to do. And I'll take the other one or two, depending on how you pick.
2: All right, so the first one is Exodus 25, verses 10 and 11. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it.
1: The next passage we have is 2 Kings 1320-21. 20 to 21. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet.
2: And Matthew 27, verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots.
1: So our topic for this week is relics and holy items. And Jenny, this is kind of one that you wanted to do. So why yeah. don't you tell us a little bit about your thought process for that?
2: Right. So I saw it on the topic list a while back and I was like, oh, that's, that'd be a pretty cool topic. And then my GM posted an article uh, about a week ago about how a town just outside of Pittsburgh holds the second largest number of relics in the world, second only to the Vatican. It's something like 5, really? 000, Yeah, 5,000 relics in one chapel because the chapel was uh, founded by an aristocrat turned priest in the late 1800s, early 1900s, I think, who was trying desperately to save as many relics as possible from looters and raiders and just general bad people who were messing up churches in Germany and Italy during some awkward, tense political times. And so he managed to save about 2,000 relics total, and get them shipped to America. Wow. Where he managed to get posted as a priest. So I find that fascinating. And I think it, I personally think it would be a really cool setting for either a Dresden Files game or a game based on the TV show Supernatural or something. Yeah. I just, I just, it's... It, like the the article will will be posted in the show notes, so so y'all can read it for yourselves. But like, it's such a yeah. No,
1: I'm sitting here like unknown armies, or <laughs> yeah. like any number of gumshoe games, or mm.
2: it's a wild ride reading that reading that article and just hearing about all the the stuff related to that church. So I could not stop thinking about like relics and and artifacts all all week, and I I really wanted to talk about it.
1: That's a very good reason to do an episode on it if you've got something that cool in your brain. So, Mm -hmm,
2: yeah, we should probably start off by saying that this podcast is hosted by a Presbyterian, a Methodist and an Anglican, and none of us are Catholic (laughs) or Orthodox. So we've researched this a fair amount. But but
1: if we get something wrong, please be patient with us and let us know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, just in general, comment on maybe your experiences with uh, relics and what they mean to you and stuff, because. We'd love to hear about that. I, I I know I certainly would. So.
1: Yeah, and it kind of bears mentioning that in an, our traditions, it's they're not really something that's that's thought about very much. It's not like, you know, oh, that, you know, this is an awful thing or something. It probably was many years ago, but these <laughs> days it's just kind of like, oh, that's kind of I guess a neat little historical thing or something.
2: Yeah. They don't hold nearly the same gravity or relevance to our particular traditions i mean i think they're really cool but i don't get the same feeling about like if i were to walk into that chapel i am sure i would not get the same feeling of gravitas that the average catholic person would so yeah just different christian experiences lead to different reactions to different christian experiences yeah
1: kind of like for instance the average catholic probably wouldn't get quite the same experience out of say the wesley covenant prayer or something Mm -hmm. okay so now that we've gotten our disclaimer out of the way (laughs) 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 so one of the one of the things that we do kind of want to talk about and we've started touching on this a little bit is there's kind of a certain theological level to how these relics work Mm -hmm. and we've got a quote from saint cyril of jerusalem here that says though the soul is not present A power resides in the bodies of saints because of the righteous soul, which has for so many years dwelt in it or used it as its minister. I read this and it's this is once again, probably my Methodist background, but it's almost like this implies a sort of holy energy or residual holiness that can permeate things long after the source is gone. And I'm sorry that this is probably a little bit disturbing and or irreverent, but that sounds almost like radiation to me.
2: (laughs) I mean, as the daughter of a nuclear chemist, yeah, that sounds a heck of a lot like radiation to me. And I mean, if you really want to include that kind of stuff in your games, head on over to Fallout 4. I'm sure you're going to get some influence there. (laughs) However. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) I I suppose we kind of missed an opportunity to put the children of Adam in here, huh?
2: Oh, we did, didn't we?
1: We can always agree. Yeah. Well,
2: (laughs) okay. So, why don't we
1: go ahead and just talk about this? So, speaking of radiation and holy relics, Mm -hmm. just to kind of, I don't know, work as like a preamble here, there's this faction in the Fallout video games, for those of you that haven't played them, which is probably, I don't know, one of our listeners, (laughs) that uh, they look at nuclear weapons, especially unexploded ones, as kind of holy relics. Mm -hmm. And those actually are radioactive.
2: Yeah. One of the first locations you go to in Fallout 3 is a town that has been built around an unexploded nuclear bomb.
1: Yeah, and the town's even called Megaton.
2: Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of the name. I had forgotten. But you basically go there, and one of the first things you see upon walking into the town is a bunch of people surrounding this highly radioactive object and essentially worshiping it because they regard the atom as the source of all being. And I guess there's a lot of atoms in in Megaton because of their the uh, their dogmas. Old bomb. A little
1: s- difficult to sort out, really. But yeah, boy, they sure do think those bombs are holy.
2: Yeah. Not to say that uh, relics in uh, Catholicism or Orthodoxy are...
1: Anything like a bunch of people clustered around a bomb. No, yeah, they're no, that's, not. That's
2: not what it's like at all.
1: It's certainly an amusing fictional example to kind of contrast yeah. to some of the more real stuff that we're going to get into here. Mm-hmm. So this was something that you brought to this that I didn't know about before. Apparently relics in the real world with actual... A theological way to them come in tears? Tell me about this.
2: Uh, that wasn't me initially. That was Grant. He wrote oh, okay. the title in the notes and then I continued with defining the classes. So first class relics are a physical part of a saint like hair or bone or skin or an instrument of Christ's passion like fragments of the cross. I am not sure if the Holy Grail would be involved in this or not because I don't know how Like I, I don't know what the exact timeline of the passion is. So I don't know if the Holy Grail would be involved in that. But if not, it would probably be a second class relic, which I'll get to after pointing out that Catholic altars, they aren't absolutely required to, but they're supposed to hold a first class relic and a reliquary, if at all possible.
1: Just a real quick note for any that don't actually know this, because I actually found out what the Holy Grail was a few years ago. It was the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper.
2: I guess I started off with the whole Indiana Jones thing. So I yeah,
1: but I mean, that's that's why it's a little ambiguous because it's like, well, does Mm -hmm. it does the passion start, you know, at the Last Supper? Does it start after he's arrested? Yeah, it's
2: it's a little ambiguous for me. I'm sure my Catholic friends would be glad to uh, tell me probably screaming at
1: their podcaster right now. Let's let's be honest.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, a second-class relic would be something that a saint owned or an instrument of torture used against a martyr. I'm trying to think of an example in real life, but honestly, I'm not So, like, that
1: iron chair the guy was basically seared to death in or something?
2: Yeah, yeah, something like that. And uh, a third-class relic, which are my personal favorites. I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to have favorite types of relics, but these are my favorite types. A third-class relic is something that has just touched a first- or second-class relic or a saint's tomb. So... It's a DIY relic. You can do it yourself real easy. I mean, <laughs> relatively easy. <laughs> Assuming you have access to If to you've relics. got
1: like a let's let's use that iron chair. So yeah. there's there's this large solid object that won't be damaged just by touching it. Mm-hmm. You could theoretically just touch objects to that and make them into third-class relics.
2: Uh yes. I also got some conflicting information though I'm not sure how reliable it is and I'm sure Catholics would be glad to correct me. But I saw something that implied that you could also make a relic second class by touching it to a first class and a third class relic touching it to a second class. But I, I am not entirely sure about that one. I'm just trying to cover hmm. all the bases of possible relic classes. So yeah. we need
1: to revisit this when we can get a Catholic on. It's basically Absolutely. what I'm hearing here. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes, really. So relics in as, as a whole, I believe... They are not allowed, unless under very specific circumstances, they are not allowed to be taken out of their reliquaries um, or their sepulchres. Um, so reliquaries are just like they're uh, it's a fancy word for container that a relic is kept in. The containers are frequently shaped like in the shape of Noah's Ark or sometimes like a limb like a like an arm or a leg. Like if you were keeping a saint's femur in a reliquary, you'd
1: probably choose something that looked like a leg.
2: Yeah, and I believe the reliquary, it's, you know, it's generally supposed to be a little fancy, but I don't think it's necessary for it to be fancy. They can also be kept inside of an altar, as previously mentioned, and the hollow part of the altar is called the sepulcher. So that's basically how you keep them. Um, I believe there are certain conditions in which they would be allowed to be removed from the container. I believe if the reliquary is damaged, but not the relic, you are allowed to move it. But even then I think you're supposed to get a letter from somebody high up in the uh, Roman Catholic hierarchy. Also, a a really important thing to note, as per Catholic canon law, specifically, I think it's called canon 1190, relics are not to be sold for profit. You can't do that, it's really bad, don't do it. Um, It falls under simony, I think that's how it's pronounced, which is like the buying and selling of holiness. Don't do that. However, if you see one for sale and you think it might be in danger of being desecrated, you are totally allowed to buy it in order to prevent it from de- being desecrated.
1: <laughs> or desecrated more than it being sold would already be doing.
2: I guess I don't I don't think it counts as desecration if it is sold. I think desecration like purposeful damage to the reliquary or the relic would be desecration. I don't think the actual selling of it would desecrate the relic. And
1: I would imagine any kind of like gross irreverence, like just throwing it in a junk drawer or something would probably also qualify. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it bears noting, although we have even less information on this, that there are other faiths that feature relics, um, certain Buddhist sects marginally among Hindu practices, uh, historic Islamic practices, although less so today and so on. You'll see the occasional relic in faiths that aren't Christianity around the world We're a Christian podcast, so we're going to kind of focus on that. But it does bear mentioning that this is not something that is a uniquely Christian practice.
2: Right. So I think we've pretty much covered what relics are and what they mean in real life to the Christian church. So how do we put that into our games? How do we implement that? We can probably assume that the GM can use relics however they want to.
1: But that's not a terribly helpful answer. So yeah. <laughs> here's here's some ideas, or at least some things to consider. So one of the one of the more common holy things that you'll see in games, because they tend to be very combat focused, are holy weapons. So like the holy avenger sword for a paladin is kind of the stereotypical one. Now, the weird thing about that is most relics in the real world are supposed to be kind of a thing that sits there and is experienced by people visiting it rather than a piece of equipment taken out and used in the world Mm -hmm. so when you have something like a weapon that's designed to fight evil stuff with that doesn't really line up all that great with kind of the way that holy relics are treated in the real world so this Mm -hmm. can be explained as a difference of the way that theology works for whatever religious organization is creating these things And that difference can be either the use of things as holy rather than just letting them sit there unused as an object of reverence, or the weapons can be more like holy water or something where it's Mm -hmm. a separate thing that is deliberately created and designed to be used as opposed to... Something that is an object of respect and reverence on its own. And it also bears mentioning that it's fine and probably most interesting, actually, if there's some disagreement in your setting on this. Uh, If you've got different orders that, you know, the Sword of Saint Whoever, maybe somebody wants to take it out and use it to fight off the undead or the demons that are kind of out in the hinterlands and somebody else is like, no, that would destroy it or, you know, it wouldn't be able to do what it's doing being here in this church. And that kind of leads naturally into the question of, do these things actually have supernatural powers of some kind
2: so sort of going off that it sort of brings up the question of whether or not the relics themselves have been imbued with the supernatural powers or if they were predefined with them like in real life there are some real life cases of ones that have been reported to do a couple specific things and then nothing else i believe the article that i read uh did actually talk about one of the relics being used in a healing process of some kind. I don't remember exactly which one, so I'm not going to say firmly that it was a specific thing. And in that case, I think it would be important for the game to define whether they qualify as just some magic item, or if they are their own thing. So whether or not you're going to consider uh, this this holy reverence to make the item magic or to make the item holy and whether or not holiness and, and magic should be conflated in your setting or system. I believe there are some systems that would allow for um, the separation of magic and holiness. You might be able to just sort of work that into the system yourself if you like. I think D&D sort of classifies holy items as magic items. Am I correct in that?
1: Yeah, it, it yeah. does. Or at least it tends to in most settings.
2: So if you want to divorce those two ideas, I am sure there are ways to do it that would fit with your game just fine.
1: Yeah, and it's probably best if... This is one of those decisions that you should probably make early in the campaign if not before it starts right yeah because the last thing you want to start doing is mixing up your cosmology in the middle and confusing your players with this sort of thing yeah now making the decision before it comes up and informing everybody of how everything works before it comes up are obviously two different things if you want Mm -hmm. to have a sense of mystery around something if you are looking to make this a reveal That's fine. You know, you obviously don't need to tell everybody everything about how everything works in the campaign world beforehand. But you do want to give some thought about this, how it interacts with other things in the game and exactly what it is that these relics do. Mm -hmm. Do they exert some kind of spiritual pressure, you know, to get back to the radiation analogy from earlier on in the episode where, you know, things are just kind of different around them in some way? Mm hmm. Grant actually provided us with an example of his uh, mage character from a uh, Mage the Ascension game that he played a while ago, a a Catholic priest who had uh, a little tiny feather that fell off the Archangel Michael's wing, and he just carried it around for a good chunk of the campaign, and they didn't really use it for anything specific, but apparently at the end of the game, things got really desperate, and they used it in a ritual to kind of protect the ritual and give it some extra oomph to keep various bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I kind of wish Grant was here to tell us that story in a little more detail, but at least he gave us the example.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So since a lot of relics are experiential in nature um, or just meant to be quietly observed, Another, this isn't technically a relic thing, but in the Orthodox tradition, icons are meant to be experienced, not used. Um, All of the stuff I've read about icons has been very much about how Western tradition is so much about use that uh, we forget to simply just experience icons as they are. But since they're not meant to be used as objects, uh, potentially proximity to relics or icons might just sort of act as warding they might just keep evil things at bay but with conditions like so long as it's treated with the correct reverence so long as it's not been desecrated etc etc
1: saying that actually brings something interesting to mind in a lot of ways it seems like at least for certain traditions that these relics function almost as like um, a signpost or something that Hmm. is kind of sufficiently theologically official to mark an Area as being holy in some way, it's it's not like yeah. they themselves are providing all of it, but it's like the mm-hmm. the presence of it is almost like um like an official stamp or something almost. Like you were talking yeah. about altars and stuff, where it's it's best if an altar can incorporate a first or second tier relic into it.
2: Mm-hmm. I believe it's first. I'm I'm not entirely sure about that.
1: That's just kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, a lot of the time, you know, like the the church. Would be or if like this, you know, this holy site or you know, a, a saint's tomb or something would be the actual place that's considered holy. Mm-hmm. But the relic is what makes it that way.
2: Yeah, I or think part it's of it? sort of the way I am looking at this primarily is that the relics are used, and in general, I think a lot of Catholicism works with physical manifestations of holiness, and those physical manifestations being a good focal point for prayer. And meditation sort of like monstrances and the host within the monstrance the the name of the particular meditation service is slipping my mind but there is a, a type of catholic service in which a monstrance which is a a large container holds a host that has been uh blessed and essentially the monstrance and host are brought out into the main part of the church and the the entire service is silent meditation hmm huh. So I think a lot of the physical aspects to relics are meant as focal points and sort of as signposts, like you said, sort of like directing your spiritual attention to a specific thing or place.
1: Okay, so we've got kind of that these things can be a place marker or that they can kind of have this passive thing. How about interacting with these things a little bit? Because in the real Mm -hmm. world, a lot of the time they moved around. So the obvious thing here, some kind of an Indiana Jones thing, right? Yeah. You've got some thing that's lost or is in the hands of some very bad people that won't be treating it correctly or something else that some other circumstance where it needs to be retrieved from somewhere and brought back. And of course, you've got traps and Nazis and whatever else standing in your way. Mm -hmm. Spirit of the century would be perfect for this kind of a thing. It's a very Mm -hmm. pulpy kind of um high adventure sort of flavor of an adventure wouldn't you say
2: yeah it's if i'm recalling correctly it's literally based off of the indiana jones movies the old ones not not the the new one with aliens yeah
1: Um. (laughs) (laughs) the first couple yeah
2: yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah just basically having the relic as the goal of the game it's true and tested plot for good fun times
1: yeah it's a it's a good macguffin And especially if they do change the world around them in some way, Mm -hmm. you could start running into some unexpected consequences once you've retrieved the thing, too. Mm -hmm. As we saw in one of the Indiana Jones movies, that might not always be benign effects either. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can you can have uh, you can have these things be dangerous if they're handled improperly, which can add an additional wrinkle you can have them maybe not appear to people who aren't worthy to handle them, which can also present an interesting wrinkle. Uh, if you've mm-hmm. got a bunch of kind of... All right, let, let's be honest about this. A lot of the time, player characters are either kind of morally ambiguous or they're complete stick in the muds and <laughs> totally virtuous. And that's because somebody like me is playing them and I have no dramatic range. <laughs> but <laughs> But that's a very good reason for a mixed group to stick together because maybe... Mm-hmm. This incredibly important thing is invisible or unpickupable to swipe, you know, Mjolnir from uh the Marvel universe to somebody who doesn't have the right moral or spiritual traits, right? Yeah. Another important thing to think about if you're using these in-game is how do they come into being? You know, we've we've got mm-hmm. those three tiers from the real world, but obviously in a fictionalized campaign setting, you may have radically different rules for how these come into being. Can they be manufactured? Can you create them
2: on purpose? Can you just pick them up from a holy spot or or something like yeah, that? Yeah,
1: I mean, if it, let's say you've got like some kind of a, a sacred pool out in the wilderness or something do all the rocks from the bottom of that count as relics. Mm hmm. And then once all those are picked up, does like a handful of the sand or something count as that? Yeah. You can run into interesting situations where people may really want something because the relics have some kind of power or something. But the things that could be considered them are starting to get depleted because so many people over time have, you know, gone to this place and taken something. You know, mm-hmm. they've they've taken a, a little fragment of the brick out of this tomb or something. And now the building is in ruins. Yeah, they've taken a branch off the tree and there's all these like stripped tree trunks in the sacred forest or something. You can yep. you can think of a lot of scenarios where sincere people of faith trying to be reverent may have actually kind of over time worked against their own interests in acquiring these things. And that mm-hmm. could be an interesting thing to play around with the implications of in game a little bit if you were so inclined
2: Yeah, you can actually sometimes sort of see that happen in real life. Like if you go to places of pilgrimage, for instance, some of the steps leading up to a certain place that are used that are specifically for pilgrims are so worn. There are like divots in the stairs.
1: And let me tell you, it takes a lot of people walking over stone stairs to put divots in them.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Another thing to think about is, at least in, in terms of how the relics are made... Can a living saint, and and this is not a particularly accepted idea within the Christian faith, but can a living saint sacrifice themselves in order to create a relic? It would certainly be an interesting thing to explore within games. To be honest, I'm not sure if I'd be comfortable with that in my game, but if you are, A plus for you. Go do it. Go yeah,
1: I'm, I'm honestly not 100% sure I'd be comfortable with that either, although it might also be an interesting thing to learn about in a historical context. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a bunch of stuff back in Christianity's past that I consider weird and or creepy to one extent mm-hmm. or another, mm-hmm. but that sincere people of faith absolutely did. Yep. So this could perhaps maybe be one of those things if you need something... A little suitable for wrestling with, I suppose, in your Mm -hmm. game.
2: Yeah. And just so y'all know, I'm not suggesting that players sacrifice their own player characters.
1: Yes, let's not go full Blackleaf here. Yeah, no.
2: Um... (laughs) Never never, go full (laughs) Blackleaf. Never go full Blackleaf. An idea similar to this one, although not exactly the same, was explored in one of the Fire Emblem games where a holy person felt it necessary to sacrifice themselves in order to better the chances for the main characters to succeed. You can also get something sort of like this in um, uh, the first Star Wars movie with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi sacrificing himself. If we are assuming that uh, there are relics in that universe, would his cloak left behind be considered a relic to the Jedi? Yeah, what his lightsaber. Or his lightsaber, yeah.
1: Yeah. Another interesting thing to note here, uh, while doing it on purpose is definitely something that is frowned on,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: a lot of the existing relics that are out there do center around martyrdom. Mm -hmm. People, they didn't sacrifice themselves to create a relic, but by sacrificing themselves for their faith, that happened as a result, like a byproduct almost. Mm Mm-hmm. This gets into some weird, muddy theological territory, yeah. and it's just—it's fascinating to think about. But this is one of those places where one of our standard disclaimers about lines and veils probably really applies, because yeah. this thing can get into some uncomfortable stuff and some squicky stuff, and just some yeah. weird stuff. <laughs> to get away from the uncomfortable, squicky, and weird, uh, <laughs> one of the other things that you can deal with if you are looking for kind of more of a crime style game, I suppose, or some elements to it, is Mm -hmm. fake relics were kind of a problem throughout history. Uh, you'd, You'd get people who were unscrupulous and would sell off just, you know, random pieces of wood as parts of the true cross or parts of, you know, some holy structure or parts of, you know, a rod that was used to beat a saint with or something. It's, it was a real problem. You, you, you get a lot of these phony relics around. And I suppose as long as we're talking about weird, difficult questions with these things... If something that starts out as a fake relic is treated with genuine reverence for a long enough time, does it become a real one?
2: Hmm. It would definitely be an interesting thing to explore in-game. Though, at least for me, I think it might get a little bit into the trope of, like, it wasn't the treasure that w- that was the goal, it was the friendships we made along the way kind yeah. of thing. Yeah,
1: and that's that's a very valid criticism of that, by yeah. the way.
2: Uh, the whole theme of, like, it was the friendships we found along the way... <laughs> Um, Although not quite that um, overt, uh, is found in a book by Clifford D. Simak, 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 Uh, and the title of the book is *The Fellowship of the Talisman*, where, I mean, to spoil a you know 30-year-old book or so, essentially it's all about finding this talisman, and in the end, the holiness of the talisman isn't in the talisman itself; it's more about Holiness being in the reverence that people hold to the the talisman itself. So, uh, yeah, uh, according to uh, my dad, it is a good book to be checked out uh, if you're interested in, uh, in relic-based plot. So
1: where you're going with this is basically that um, that trope can actually be used in non-cheesy ways, and there's yeah. at least one piece of evidence that can be tracked down and <laughs> read. That's good to know.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: yeah. so... Getting back to our unscrupulous relic dealers, because these are these guys are full of all kinds of adventure hooks and stuff. So you can have church doctrine that has rules about buying and selling of relics, right? Obviously, that was true in history. <laughs> and I'm sure it's still true today, but I'm not Catholic, so I don't know exactly if the rules have changed or they've remained more or less the same. But people who don't subscribe to whatever religion has those rules will sometimes try and find ways to exploit that. Now, This may be out of nihilism and just being a bad person, you know, oh, I don't believe in anything, whatever, you know, this is all about money or something. This could be a sincere misunderstanding where Mm -hmm. you get like, okay, so for instance, in our D&D game, the uh, the one that Grant and I are part of, we're running into a lot of these different cultures as we move around these islands. Um, We've run into uh, the Kanku so far on the island that we're on. We have seen evidence of gnolls. Uh, We've seen evidence of minotaurs. We have run up against lizard people. And then there's also an island with a bunch of frog people on it that hopefully we'll get to this coming Saturday if Grant is finally healed up again. So all of these different species have their own different cultures and their own sets of beliefs about how things work. There's kind of a a cultural personality to them as is common in role-playing games. The the lizard people are very deadpan, for instance. They don't have a whole Mm. lot of emotional intensity to them. Mm-hmm. The Kenku tend to be a little bit suspicious, and um, if you're an old shaman, there's also kind of a wise-cracking, smart aleck, and a very fun NPC, but <laughs> it doesn't take a huge leap of logic to say that one of the members of one of these cultures might get exposed to the other one, want to make a good impression, misunderstand how something works... And you can just kind of see the trail of consequences going <laughs> yeah. from there. But all of a sudden, there's all these fake relics circulating around because, hey, I'm helping, right? Mm-hmm. So tracking somebody down like that and setting them straight without hurting them in some way, you yeah. know, not not destroying their livelihood, not destroying their person. That could make for a very interesting, probably not a whole campaign, but definitely an interesting arc within one where you kind mm-hmm. of have to untangle some of these misconceptions that you're having about how this stuff works. And I think the thing that's making this come to mind is we did some research, but we don't have this as a background. So we're kind of like, how exactly does this work? You know, Catholic listeners, please fill us in. Yeah. And I can only imagine what it must be like in a fantasy setting where – You've got like, you know, these people over here are, you know, frog people and they're like four islands over and I'm a bird person from this island and I just encountered them and I'm trying to make friends. And oh, my goodness, what have I done?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Along the same lines, uh, swapping out a relic with a fake one. Either putting the fake one in its place so you can get the real one to safety or finding out that a real one has been swapped for a fake one and tracking the real one down. Mm -hmm. That can make for an interesting adventure, too. Uh, These things are excellent as MacGuffins because a lot of the time they require special care and they're not always the kind of thing that's going to stick out, right? I mean, if you don't know to be looking for it, to go back to your example from the earlier part of the, uh, the episode... Let's say you've got some traveling merchant and he's just got a bunch of like, you know, containers of stuff in the back of his wagon. Well, it's like just like some random sculpted arm or leg seems like the sort of thing that you'd see in a cartoon, right? You know, like, how did this get in here? And, you know, they just kind of toss it off to the side. Mm -hmm. Well, that was actually the most important thing, you
2: know? Yeah. It's also important to note that at least in real life, a lot of reliquaries are tiny. They are so small. like. They are these things that are supposed to be, you know, held with great reference and they are supposed to be, you know, a little bit, you know, they can be a little bit fancy, but a lot of the time they're like about the size of a locket because it's a piece of hair. And in some cases you need to be able to transport it fairly easily. Like in a couple instances uh, talked about in um, the article that we're going to link in the show notes.
1: So, yeah. Okay. You know what? To go back to that, because this is very relevant to the part of the episode that we're on here. Mm -hmm. How exactly, did they discuss how exactly he had to transport it? Because I'm guessing it probably wasn't throw it in a shipping crate with a bunch of straw and slap I a label on don't the outside. I
2: believe they discussed it in the article. I believe there may be another article from the same website that does discuss it, but I am not entirely certain about that.
1: Okay, so that is something definitely that you want to come up with in your game if you're going to do yeah. this, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's also important to note that the guy who did the transportation He was a former aristocrat, so he did have money to do it.
1: And probably connections, too.
2: Yeah. So things to consider for uh, the transportation of of relics within your game. Another aspect, do you need a person of the faith to transport it? Do you need somebody fairly high up in the religion or in the um, uh, denomination of the religion to transport it? What sorts of resources are you going to need in order to move the thing? Yeah, that's an
1: interesting question because if if you just need somebody, that's very different than saying if you need a cardinal. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot of like lay followers, there's a decent number of priests, there's a fair number of bishops. We need a cardinal to move this thing. <laughs> Do you have any idea how busy their schedules are? <laughs> yeah. That that might make for some interesting material too.
2: Oh yeah, that could be a, a, a the campaign all on itself.
1: Yeah, just trying to figure out how you can pull all the strings that you need just to move something a couple hundred miles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If your game group likes politicking and stuff, this might be an interesting thing to explore. Mm-hmm. And I, to kind of bring this full circle background to the beginning of the episode, I think we would probably be remiss if we didn't at least touch on places where this has been used other than traditional fantasy or pulp history or, I suppose, horror yeah um, <laughs> You will see this kind of thing in sci-fi a little bit. And there was actually a couple of interesting examples of it in uh, the original Mass Effect trilogy, which the last game came out over five years ago. I feel like I can spoil at least some of this. So
2: (laughs) you want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the very first game, in a fairly early mission, you find some of the bads, some of the enemies worshipping technology. And this makes sense because the enemies are robots. So in your future sci-fi game, do the robots have religion? And if so, what objects are religiously significant to them? For instance, the Geth in Mass Effect, um, you see them bowed down, I believe, around a Reaper console of some kind. In Mass Effect 2, one of your crew members, Legion, who is a Geth, you find wearing some of your old beat up armor and you ask him why your armor.
1: And he's very evasive about his answering and... Like, that is the most uncomfortable body language I have ever seen on a robot in my life. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Going along similar lines, what would be the significance in your setting of literal atomic reconstruction of relics? Like, with the advent of 3D printing upon us, how real is the copy to you? Or which one is the copy?
1: Yeah, this especially gets thorny in like a Star Trek-like setting with replicators and stuff where it's not even 3D printing. It's like atomic reconstruction. Uh
2: Uh-huh. Like, does the holiness transfer? Could you just, you know, go up to your average Copy Express and be like, hey, I uh, need a little bit of holiness in my life. Can you, uh, you know, print me off one of those knuckle bones, please?
1: Yeah. And, you know, looking at this from kind of our current perspective, the answer seems to be no. Mm -hmm. But you could go through kind of... I could see a setting where the thought process would eventually work its way around to yes. I Mm -hmm. I think you'd have to, like so many things that we've talked about in this episode, I think you'd have to approach that somewhat carefully. Yeah. But I think you could get there. And another, if you don't want to do like the 3D printing thing, digital storage media would be another interesting place to go. Yeah. You've got, you know, some holy work. Let's say somehow you have the very first hard drive that ever held a digital copy of the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. Tech, even to go lower tech, you've got the original printing plates from the first run of the Gutenberg Bible.
2: Yeah.
1: Is that holy? Why or why not? How? You mm-hmm. know? Does it transfer if you print from it or if you copy directly from that source? Is that source even usable or readable anymore? Mm-hmm. If so or if not, what does that mean? How does how does that spur people to action or what does that dictate is done with this thing? Is it is it mm-hmm. kept powered on, for instance, even if you can't read it anymore? Yeah. just so that, you know, the spindle keeps going. If the motor finally dies, does that mean that it's no longer as holy as it was before? Mm-hmm. Do you disconnect it? Do you leave it symbolically connected? You can think about this kind of thing. This will give texture to your setting. And it it's interesting kind of the way that people represent reverence with things and mm-hmm. what facet that's supposed to bring out of the thing itself. Yeah. You got anything else, Jenny? I, I feel like we've kinda circled around this one a little bit, but yeah,
2: uh yeah. I, I think we've uh we've covered pretty much all the bases that at least I feel qualified to cover.
1: Yeah. Uh, as as qualified as I feel about this, I kinda feel like I've gotten everything that I feel qualified in too. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll leave you there, folks. Uh, Do us a favor. If you like what we're doing, share us around on social media, rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or any place else that aggregates podcasts that you can leave a review for us. And uh, if you're so inclined, you can always track down our Patreon. All of that is available at our website. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also on social media, both individually and as a podcast.
2: Yep. Also, we've got a Patreon and uh, you can back is it you know any of the tiers listed there
1: to help us continue to produce the show yeah that is, that is one thing that we did kind of gloss over at the beginning of the episode that does bear mentioning we are entirely or listener funded mm-hmm. uh it used to be something that grant was paying for mostly out of his own pocket since we started the patreon we became listener funded almost immediately and we have been ever since then so we want to thank you folks for supporting us in that way If you want to get in on that, it's all available on our website, stgcast.org. All right, from both of us, uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Yep.
2: See ya.
0: This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at Nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.